0: Well, my name is Eric Newcomb. Uh, I've lived in Beijing for 12 years with my wife, JJ. JJ and I, this year, will celebrate our 14th wedding anniversary. Uh, So, most of our time married has been in China. But uh, I wanted to show you a picture to start with. You guys know what that is? Seems pretty safe and innocent, but I want to let you in on a little secret. This was one of the biggest fights that my wife and I had when we first got married. So if you go back 13 years ago, um, we're driving in a car. Actually, before that, let me give you a little background. Um, My wife very graciously had adapted in many ways my bachelor style living, which makes no sense because when we go to the grocery store, I don't understand from my bachelor way of thinking, why do you need to spend all this money on Jif peanut butter when the generic peanut butter tastes exactly the same? But there's no rationalization in the way Bachelor Living thinks because I wouldn't let J.J. buy generic pre-cut cold cuts. I only wanted to buy the deli turkey and the the deli ham. And so thankfully J.J. went along with a lot of that. But this is where the buck stops, is with macaroni and cheese. So I wanted to tell you a little story uh, to begin with about, about J.J. and I. We were Coming home from a meeting, we were driving in a car, and I just very innocently said, "What's for lunch?" And she said, "Macaroni and cheese." And so I said, "Oh, okay. What else?" And she—I can hear people giggling. Maybe they've had this same discussion. But she said, "What do you mean, what else? That—that's all we're having is macaroni and cheese." And so I thought about it a little bit, and I thought, "Hmm, "I don't know." So I pushed her a little on it. I said, well, could we maybe cut up some hot dogs and throw it in? Uh, could we have some sort of protein? She's like, no, we're just going to have macaroni and cheese. And so I remember saying to her, I, no, I don't, I don't think that's right. I, I'm a big dude. I need to have macaroni and cheese. Is just not going to cut it for me. I'm still. I'm going to be starving by the time dinner comes. And so what I didn't realize, I was being a very simple-minded guy, and I was arguing about a box of macaroni and cheese. But my wife, being more of a complex mind and thinking through and connecting the dots and connectedness, she was arguing, look, I've given up the peanut butter, I buy your deli meat, I want to have this macaroni and cheese. But even more, she was arguing, can't you trust me as your wife, to provide a meal for you? Can't you allow me to be the one to, to serve you this this meal? But I was arguing over a box of macaroni and cheese. And so what I realized is, is we were totally looking at this from two different perspectives. Mine was probably more, a lot of you guys can relate, I'm arguing over what we're arguing over. But... Uh, <laughs> But for J.J., there was much, much more. There was a lot of depth to that argument. So you might be wondering, okay, well, what does this have to do with what Eric's going to share today? And I just want to be upfront and honest, not much at all. But if you look at Scripture, there are multiple times in which people argue over food. You know, Jacob, he swindles Esau out of his birthright over over a, a red stew. It's a pretty interesting story. The Israelites complained in the desert about the manna that God provided for them. You know, in Acts 6, we see an argument arise over the distribution of food. And then in Galatians, which is what we're going to look at today, we see that Paul rebukes one of the leaders of the church, Peter, uh, for how he ate. So let's go ahead and look at that verse. Actually, before we do that, let me pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you that you love us so much. That no matter what we do, uh, there's nothing that we can do that, that you would remove your love from us. Thank you that your gospel is a gospel of grace. It's not a gospel of condemnation. Thank you that um, it's not what we do that makes us in relationship with you. It's who we are, your children. So, Father, I pray that you would just speak through me today. Open our hearts. Help us engage your word. Illuminate it to our, to our hearts, Lord. It's your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so JJ and I had an argument in a car about macaroni and cheese. Actually, to be honest, the argument extended past our car ride. And even to this day, we laugh about something will come up that we feel like we're arguing over, and I'll say, wait a minute, is this another macaroni and cheese thing? So I don't know if you guys have things like that in your life that you can point to, but in some ways it actually helps us now as, as new New arguments arise. Let's go ahead and look at Paul and Peter and see what they argued over. So Galatians 2 says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party." And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birthright and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to justify, be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So here we have Peter and his friends. They were justified by faith in Christ alone. They were even living under the, that understanding and the freedom that comes from that understanding. But then something happens. Well, what happens? James sends men to visit with Peter, and Peter changes. He no longer is living under the, under the gospel, but he is quick, once again, to try and live under the law. He so quickly forgets that, by, like it says in Galatians, by works of the law, no one will be justified. You know, I often feel sorry for Peter. You know, we often see his mistakes. Jesus rebukes him to the point that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. We also see Peter when he begins to lack faith and therefore begins to drown when Jesus is walking on the water. Of course, we're all very familiar with Peter's denial of Jesus very publicly three times. And here we are again seeing him mess up to the point that Paul, who is not even a disciple, Paul, who used to persecute the church, is the one to rebuke him. You know, I feel sorry for Peter because his mistakes are so public. Therefore, not only are they public, but they're recorded in the Bible. The most read book in all of history. Peter's mistakes are there. How would you feel if that was you? This book is going to go on for eternity, and Peter's mistakes are there. You know, I think I I also feel sorry for Peter because I can relate to him. That could be me. Having accepted the gospel by faith but spending the rest of my life Trying to earn my salvation. You know, a few, few a few verses later in the book of Galatians, Paul says it like this: Galatians three three, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That is a great question. What would you say? I think for me, I, I have my moments. There's times where I, where I get the gospel, but there's definitely more times where I feel like I need to be perfected in the flesh. I certainly feel foolish. Like Peter, there's things that cause me to revert back to my old nature. There's circumstances, experiences, relationships that make it difficult for me to trust in the sovereign grace of the gospel. And therefore, what I do is I try and take control of my own life. And then I try and earn Christ's death on the cross you know, Tim Keller often uses the term cheapening grace, and I feel like that's what I do at times. I cheapen grace by trying to earn it back myself. So are there things in your life that make it difficult for you to trust in Christ alone? What would that be? What makes it hard for you to accept, as Paul writes in Ephesians, he calls it his lavish grace. I love that word lavish. I don't even know what it means, but it sounds like a lot. So... For me, I think the biggest way I struggle to understand that grace is related to failure. I really struggle to accept failure. Over the last several years, I've come to see that failure is often used by God, it brings about teachable moments. God uses failure in my life to to help me realize that it's not about me doing works, it's not about me performing and doing the right things. But I, I don't want to learn through failure. I would rather learn a different way. And oftentimes, I would rather not learn at all. Because it's very difficult for me to accept failure. So out of fear, if I feel like something's going to fail, out of fear, I take control. And I try and live out in the flesh. I'm going to make this work. And I work harder and harder and harder and harder. But the reality is, is maybe God would, would have done the work in a different way. And maybe I wouldn't have failed, but he would have showed up and then I would have understood God more. Or maybe, the reality is, maybe I would have failed. But then God would have turned around and used that. But I don't allow that to happen because I take control of my own life. You know, Peter struggled to experience this gospel. And in the passage we just read, Paul says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So here Peter was taking control again. So what is this true gospel? How do I conduct in step with the truth of the gospel? Well, what I wanted to do is have a look at what's the difference between religion and the gospel. You know, I remember when I first became a believer, I love to tell people that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. A religion is man centered and focused on the things that man does. A relationship is God centered and it's focused on the things that God does. It's not following a list of rules and regulations. As much as I like that religion and relationship dichotomy, the more as I've talked to people, I feel like the word relationship has a lot of baggage to it because we have a lot of imperfect, imperfect relationships here on earth. So instead of using the word relationship, I want to compare religion and, and the gospel. So next I wanted to show you a, a slide that, that, that shows the difference. You know, we use this often when we're sharing with people uh, the gospel. I think it's something that we need to, to hear often in our hearts, even as believers. On the, that side, uh, on the right side, you can see that it's man trying to reach up to God. God is holy and perfect, and we are not. So when you take something perfect and you mix it with something that's imperfect, you end up with something imperfect. And so because of that, and because of our sin in our lives, there's a gulf that separates God and man. Now, the arrows represent different things that we do to try and reach God, whether it's trying to live a perfect life. It could be all the different religions of the world, trying to reach this state of nirvana, um, trying to, um, as we pray, all the different things that we do. It could even be good things like going to church or reading our Bible. But nothing we do could ever reach up to, to touch God. But Christianity is the only religion in the world where it's God reaching down to us. And as you can see, that line goes completely across. And so to me, it's really easy, this diagram, to see who's doing the work. It's God. Often I feel like it's me that has to do the work. But my arrows are never going to reach up. But God is able to come down and, and, and relate to me and know me. So I found a chart in an old Tim Keller article a while ago, and what I wanted to do is just go through maybe three or four of the differences between religion and the gospel that Tim Keller spelled out that I I felt like were very impacted on my life. the first one, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Which one do you relate to? If I'm honest, I would say I, I vacillate between the two. I 100 percent know in my head that I'm accepted. But they say when communication is always very difficult, but somebody once said that the most difficult communication is the 18 inches to get a message from your head to your heart. And so I think I struggle in my heart to know that I'm fully accepted. I believe in my head, but what about you? Do you believe in your heart? You know, I have awesome kids. I think anybody that knows my kids would think, man, Eric's kids are awesome. But I want to let you in on a secret. Sometimes they frustrate me to no end. Because kids can do that. But at the same time, nothing my kids would ever do would make me not love them. Nothing my kids would ever do would make them not my kids anymore. And for me, that was huge in helping me understand God and his relationship to us, that nothing I do would make God love me less. And so becoming a dad actually is one way in which I've been able to get more of the message from my head to my heart. You know, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, people talk about Noah and Jonah and all these famous biblical characters. One of my favorite characters in the Bible doesn't even have a name. He's known as the thief on the cross next to Jesus. Now, there's two of them. One hurls ridicule at Jesus, but the other one says, remember me. And Jesus says, tomorrow you'll be with me in paradise. And so for me, that has been a huge encouragement because that thief on the cross didn't do anything. He didn't obey, and therefore he was accepted. He just reached out to Jesus and was accepted. Not based on his works, not based on the things that he does, but based on grace. So for me, that is an awesome image, and I often go back to that of, here is a guy that had, did nothing well. He even was being killed for the, the evil that he has done. But yet Jesus was able to extend grace to him. Paul in Ephesians says it like this: For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing; it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no no one may boast. Our acceptance is not based on what we do, but based on what He did. This understanding and acceptance gives me a heart to want to obey. In fact, Ephesians. Goes on, I don't have it up there, but in verse ten it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in Him. So I'm not saying that we as believers shouldn't do good works. I'm saying that the Lord accepts us for who we are even before we do that. And our works, if we if we do that, and we understand who we are, then our works will be done out of gratitude and out of joy and not out of fear. And insecurity. You know, Philip Yancey puts it this way. When God looks upon the graph, my life graph, he sees not jagged swerves like the ups and downs, but rather a steady line of good, the goodness of God's Son captured it in a moment and applied for all eternity. Yeah, like that. He sees the good. He sees what Jesus has done. He doesn't see all the things that I've done. I love how it says, applied for all eternity. So the things that I've messed up in the past, he sees Jesus. Right now, the things that I struggle with, he sees Jesus. The things that are going to occur in the future, he sees Jesus. It's not based on, I'm accepted and therefore I obey. It's not based on my obedience. So the second thing I wanted to look at is when we look at the difference between religion and the gospel. Is religion is motivated by motivation is based on fear and insecurity. Whereas the gospel motivation is based on grateful joy. You know this flows from the first observation. If I only feel accepted based on my performance, then I'm constantly living out of fear and insecurity. Was I good enough? Did I do the right things? Is God pleased with me? If if my motivation is based on fear and insecurity, then I'm constantly going to be wondering, where's that bar, and how do I get to it? However, if I already know that I'm unconditionally fully and lovingly accepted, then my motivation springs from the joy that's in my heart. A joy that is responsive to the feeling of, As Rick put it last week, anchoring myself to something which is secure. You know, people pick up on subtle things we do and say. People can often see the motivation behind what we do. Imagine the impact that you can have on your neighbors, on your coworkers, on your family, on your kids if they see what you're doing is motivated out of joy and gratitude instead of motivated out of, I ought to be doing this. Or I'm doing this out of fear and insecurity. When we truly understand our acceptance from him, our natural response is to serve him. The next religion versus the gospel thing I wanted to talk about is religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel says, I obey God to get God to delight and resemble him. You know, I want to seek the giver and not the gifts. I think it's easy for me to, to seek God's blessing instead of God. You know, I, what what does your prayer life look like? I know it's easy for me to to fall into a pattern of just constantly asking for things. I see God as like a spiritual vending machine or spiritual Santa, Santa Claus that is just going to give and give and give. I skip the praise and worship aspect of my prayer life, and I often go straight to me, me, give me, give me, give me. I need, I need, I need. You know, I, one of the things I don't enjoy is when I have to travel for work. I don't like being away from JJ and the kids, especially with the kids being at such a young age. But I love the excitement and joy they have when I come home. But early on, I, I, I felt guilty that I was away for work. So I'd buy them gifts. And so when I would come home, they'd be excited that I'm home, but then they start realizing, Daddy brings a gift with him every time. And so I stopped doing that because I don't want the kids to only care about the gift. I want them to love me. But I I do that to God. I seek the gifts and not the gift giver. You know, what if... What if your marriage was like that? What if my marriage was like that? Or all I did for J.J. is, is tell her the things I need and I want instead of praising her and encouraging her and instead of edifying her. You know, I, I think that's how we can treat God at times. The next thing I wanted to talk about is religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself since I believe, like Job's friends, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. The gospel says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know all my punishment fell on Jesus, and that while he may allow this for my training, he will exercise my father, his fatherly love within my trial. Now, I think often I get this sense of entitlement. I do good things. I preached on Sunday. God owes me. Therefore, uh, my week is going to go well. That's not how God works. He doesn't owe us. One time I was in college and I was playing basketball with my friends, and uh, they passed me the ball and I shot a three pointer. Swish, I made it. It was the third three pointer in a row I had made. And one of my friends said to me, Boy, Eric, you must have had a quiet time this morning. And even though it was funny and he was just joking with me, I think I often feel that way. I do things for God, therefore he has to do things for me. There's a sense of entitlement and and you owe me now. But that's not how God works. When life isn't... And the flip side of that, what about when life isn't going well? Do we reach out to God or do we blame God? God, this is all your fault. I think it's easy for me to look at that, like, look at life like that. So religion says, my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I am living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I am prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. Contrary, if and when I am not living up to standards, I feel humble, but not confident. I feel like a failure. So that's what religion says. As we look at ourselves, it's easy for, if I'm doing well, it's easy for me to look down upon other people. But the gospel says, my self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ, I am simultaneously sinful and lost, yet accepted in Christ. I am so bad that he died for me, and I am so loved that he was glad to die for me. This leads me to a deeper and deeper humility and confidence at the same time, neither swaggering nor sniveling. So our understanding of the gospel not only impacts our self-view, but it impacts how we interact with other people. You know, First John, John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. So do you lack love for people around you? Do you lack love for your spouse? Do you lack love for your kids? Do you you lack love for your coworkers and neighbors? Well, what do you do? We love because he first loved us. You go to the source of love. You go to God and ask him to give you the strength, to give you the love for other people. We can't give what we do not have. So we need to to go to God and have him fill us with love so that we can love well. Religion says, My identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am, and so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to the other. The gospel says, My identity and self-worth is centered on the one who died for his enemies who was excluded from the city for me. That that relates to uh, something else Tim Keller was sharing in his article. Uh, I am saved by sheer grace, so I cannot look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace I am what I am. I have no inner need to win arguments. For me, I think it's easy to Look down upon other people. I feel like I, I get this sense of superiorness or superiority. And when other people are struggling, or it's, to be honest, it happens mostly at work. When other people can't work or aren't, aren't working because uh, of different things, I think it's easy for me to think, why aren't they doing that? Why aren't they working? I, I'm here giving 110%. They're only giving 60%. I don't understand. And so I start feeling angry, and pride swells up in my heart. But all that does is move me farther away from God. All it does is move me farther away from other people. To me, I feel like that's me understanding religion and not the gospel. Because if I truly understood how uh, only by grace I am what I am, then I I wouldn't feel the need to look down upon other people. So understanding the gospel really makes me love and engage other people well. Understanding that I'm accepted and not because of my obedience, not because of my work, helps me engage other people with the gospel. And The last one says, religion says, since I look at my own pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability... My heart manufactures idols. It may be my talents, my moral record, my personal discipline, my social status, etc. I absolutely have to have them, so they serve as my main hope, meaning happiness, security, and significance. Whatever I may say, I believe about God. So here's people who put their hope in things of the world. Put their hope in in. And me getting a promotion, or me having a proper status, or me giving a good sermon. I can't put my hope in those things. Those things fail. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says I may have many good things in life my family, my work, spiritual disciplines, etc. But none of these good things are ultimately things to me, or ultimate things to me. None of them are things I absolutely have to have. So there is a limit to how much anxiety, bitterness, and despondency they can inflict on me when they are threatened and lost. I know there's a lot of words there, but basically what it's saying is what Rick talked about last week, about anchoring ourselves to that which is secure, which is Christ. And as I anchor myself to other things, then, then my, my life is filled with fear and insecurity. So you might be thinking, okay, these are great things, Eric, but how does that apply to me? What does it look like to live out the gospel? What does it look like to understand the gospel? Well, I think the first thing is understanding, which hopefully today we're going to walk out of here with a little more understanding in our heads. But how do we move it from our heads to our hearts? How do I know, move that I'm accepted by God fully based on what he's done and not based on what I do? How do I move that from my head to my heart? Well, I think one of the ways we do it is we live it out. We remind ourselves that of that. I read a book years ago by Jerry Bridges that said we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. I think that's something that we often fail to do. I'm good at preaching condemnation to myself. I'm good at preaching, uh, seeing the things that I fail and I do wrong and focus on those. But I don't. I don't preach the gospel to myself daily. Not only that, but we need to preach the gospel to each other. God didn't give us a solitude. It's not good for man to be alone. God gave us a community. They call it the body of Christ for a reason. And I think we need to extend love and the gospel to other people. We need to be willing to share our hurts and our vulnerability with people. In order for J.J. to, to minister the gospel to me... I need to let her know where I I mess up. In order for you guys to be able to come along and fully accept me, you need to be able to see me and not the image that I portray and put out front. And so in order to do that, I need to be real with people. So as we understand the gospel, we need to walk in the gospel. And the way we do that is through accepting others and loving others well. In many ways, it's the great commandment when loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as yourself. So that's my prayer for us today, that we would be able to not only know these truths, but that we'd live them out, not only in our lives, but in our relationships, and our understanding of who God is. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your word that that tells us the truths of the gospel. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Father, thank you that your gospel is, is freedom. Your gospel is grace. That you accept us for who we are and not what we do. That you sent your son to die on the cross for my sin, for our sin. For the sin of the, the thief on the cross next to him. That it's not all of our works are like filthy rags. But yet, Lord, in the midst of all of the things that we offer to you, all you want is us. So, Father, I pray that you would help us experience that truth this week. Help us to get it from our head to our hearts. That we are fully accepted and fully loved by you. We love you, Lord. It's your name I pray. Amen.